You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Acute coronary syndrome, an umbrella diagnosis that encompasses both a type of heart attack known as non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction and unstable angina or chest pain. It is usually caused by a blood clot temporarily or partially blocking a coronary artery. So where are we in 2007? What are the current guidelines? Do we balloon these patients? Do we balloon and stent them? Are we still giving thrombolytics? Should we send them to surgery or just let the patient cool off? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Deepak Bhatt, Associate Director of the Cardiovascular Coordinating Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bhatt. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let's talk today about just the non-ST segment acute MIs. What are you doing? What is the current optimal treatment? Are you taking these people directly to the cath lab, or are they kind of cooling down first? Well, that's a good question. There's actually been a, a lot of changes in the world of non-ST segment elevation MI uh, that I'm just going to call non-STEMI uh, from this point forward, including with the nomenclature. Many people who are um, out of medical school several years might be more familiar with the term non-Q-wave MI, mm, right. which is what these things were called and sometimes still are. But the preferred term really has changed to non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction just because that's a bit more precise in terms of, of diagnosis. The Q-wave as it turns out, doesn't necessarily mean that there is or isn't infarction. That is, we know now someone can have an infarction, including a big one, without the development of Q wave. So uh, the key differentiating feature is on the electrocardiogram, is there or is there not ST elevation MI? If there is ST elevation MI, that's an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction or STEMI, and the patient goes down one pretty distinct uh, algorithm of care. On the other hand, if they don't have ST segment elevation on the ECG, but it's still believed to be an acute coronary syndrome, that is chest discomfort or some sort of anginal equivalent uh, occurring at rest uh, associated with positive biomarkers, that is a positive troponin or positive creatinine kinase or CKMB, that's what non-ST segment elevation MI or non-STEMI refers to. Dr. Bott, I'm just thinking about patients I've seen recently in my office, and what do you do with someone who comes in with a kind of a stuttering picture of chest pain with a totally normal EKG and has been having chest pain for, let's say, months that you think is cardiac and could be unstable angina. Do you throw them in the hospital or can you wait a few days? It sort of depends on the character of the pain in terms of duration, escalation of symptoms, etc. So in somebody that's just having the same sort of symptomatology for the past several months, that's unlikely to be unstable angina because it's not progressed uh, to anything more serious, namely actual myocardial necrosis. So there, I think an outpatient stress test is probably reasonable. That same patient who's been having chronic stuttering chest pain for the past few few months, but is seeing you in the office today because all of a sudden now for the past three days, uh, the pain's occurring more frequently or at rest, whereas before it was with some degree of exertion or the intensity has changed, they're probably ought to go to an emergency department. These days, most often to a chest pain center uh, for a quick uh, sort of rule out. And if they rule out, and by that I mean negative biomarkers, no development of ECG changes, at that point, probably an expedited stress test would be the way to go once more. How do you feel about the use of of 64 slicers in these in these chest care centers? Yeah, that's a very provocative question. The the whole. Uh area of CT angiography for diagnosis of coronary artery disease is extremely controversial. I think that, first of all, there's got to be the huge caveat. It's got to be done by people that really know what they're doing. And to be frank, there's a fair amount of CT angiography that's going on out there, and there's a good proportion of it that's not high quality. So it really does require good 
technology, that is the machine's got to be good, good technicians and good interpreting physicians that really have adequate training to do that. And assuming all those pieces are in place, I think CT angiography can be useful at times, uh, say in a 30-year-old female, no premature family history, non-diabetic, who's got chest discomfort, Mm -hmm. maybe is a bit obese, and that's the only risk factor. You're worried that, say, a stress echocardiogram might not provide good images because of her body habitus. Perhaps a a stress thallium may provide a false positive because of breast attenuation or just because of obesity. There, I think CT angio is not an unreasonable way to go where your pretest probability is low and you're essentially just trying to show that there are normal coronaries without going the more invasive step of doing a, a cardiac catheterization. So that's not an unreasonable use, though there is still some radiation exposure from the CT angio as well. So I, I think that's a good use. On the other hand, you know, let's say it's a 75-year-old diabetic male uh, with a 50 50- year pack year smoking history that's coming in, you know, with a great story uh, for rest angina. Their CT angio, I think, is not helpful at all because that patient's going to end up getting a cardiac catheterization anyway, more than likely, because the pretest probability is so high that it's coronary artery disease. And you'll want a cardiac catheterization, at least as a prelude to doing an angioplasty or stent. And at this point in time, even if the decision were to do bypass surgery as a roadmap for bypass surgery, CT angio is not quite high resolution enough to provide enough information for that purpose either. Uh, let's say you go to the cath lab, and once you get in there, you find a lot of lesions. How do you find out which one's the culprit lesion, and then do you just stent that one, or do you do the entire tree? That has been an area of ongoing controversy. Let me first start with those things that are pretty certain and evidence-based. For that patient, you know, that's come in with a true acute coronary syndrome, positive biomarker, say a positive troponin, good story for chest discomfort. So it's the real thing. The weight of evidence really does support that that patient should go to the catheterization lab, a so-called early invasive strategy, as opposed to just being, quote-unquote, cooled off, that is given aspirin, heparin, maybe some of the more novel antithrombotic agents. Even though in the past, thinking in some quarters was, well, you know, it's probably a ruptured plaque, there's a thrombus on there, let's give some medicines and dissolve that thrombus, and then it'll be safer, say, to do a catheterization or angioplasty or stenting. As it turns out, the data in trials don't support that, even though it sounds kind of logical. Mm-hmm. And really the right thing to do is to take such patients to the catheterization lab, assuming there are no contraindications. Now then, uh, let's say that angiography finds a significant culprit lesion, that is the patient came with ST depression inferiorly in the right coronary artery, has a uh, severe stenosis, and it looks like an ACS lesion. Certainly going ahead and treating that's the right thing to do, and in the uh, current era, at least uh, in the U.S. and for that matter, most parts of the world, that'll mean getting a stent. Let's say now, as you said, the other arteries also have severe narrowing. Should they be treated or not? Well, there, uh, it's not quite as clear what to do. Certainly treating the culprit lesion is based on a lot of evidence, and that's evidence that shows a reduction in endpoints like recurrent heart attack or mortality, so hard endpoints that are reduced. Treating the other lesions is probably indicated, not so much uh, for purposes of mortality reduction or reducing future MI risk, but just to reduce future angina, as well as reducing the need for future procedures. And In fact, one of our uh, fellows, Mehdi Shishabor, uh, recently published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology a propensity analysis that showed that uh, multivessel stenting is better than just culprit-only stenting in those sort of ACS patients. I'm thinking about my cousin Scott, who actually had a angioplasty a few weeks ago for a critical 
lesion, and uh, they told him they wanted to go back in a few weeks and kind of stent some of his other lesions. And I'm a little skeptical and wondering, well, you know, the other lesions are not causing a problem. He has another 65% lesion, and he passed his stress test. And what happened to your colleague, Dr. Nissen's view of, you know, let's treat the entire arterial tree with optimal medical management, and hopefully those plaques will not progress in size? Yeah, that's uh, a very timely question. And that's why I tried to make that key distinction between a culprit lesion where there is evidence that treating it, in particular with angioplasty and stenting, reduces future mortality uh, as well as future recurrent myocardial infarction risk, and treating the other lesions that weren't the culprit, which at this point in time we don't have any hard evidence, reduces future mortality or MI risk, but certainly does reduce the risk of future angina or future revascularization procedures, either percutaneous or surgical. So the reason to to treat your cousin's other lesions aren't because those treatments will make him live longer. Mm -hmm. I mean, there probably he needs to be on a high dose of a statin, antiplatelet therapy, good control of blood pressure, diabetes, other risk factors. That's going to have a mortality impact. The additional stents that are going to be placed beyond the stenting that he had a couple weeks ago, the culprit lesion, is unlikely to affect his mortality in a beneficial way. It's unlikely to increase his mortality either, so I don't think he's being hurt by this. The, the one thing you said that doesn't totally make sense is that he passed a stress test afterwards, and if he really didn't have any abnormality on a good quality stress test, mm-hmm. one could question whether this, uh, what you characterize as a 65% lesion, really does need to be treated. All right. We're sticking with Scott for a while, if you don't mind. Oh, no, no. We've got to do the right thing by Scott. Uh, <laughs> he's going to have his 65% stented this week, but You and I both know he's got some 20s and 30s and 40s throughout his arterial tree, and those are the ones that are most likely going to rupture. Those are probably the vulnerable ones, or at least we know that from autopsy studies. So again, I'm going to ask, why bother, if he's having no angina, going after that second lesion? It just seems like... Once again, the oculostenotic reflex is alive and well. Well, the 65% makes it even more controversial than, than perhaps you intend because, in, in fact, in general, you know, when lesions are less than 70%, unless they're associated with angina or a large territory of ischemia, they really ought not to be fixed. So, so this may indeed be a case of the oculostenotic uh, reflex uh, gone out of control. So, so I, I, I'm not sure why the 65% is being treated because it's not the conventional 70% or more, and you said that he passed a stress test, right. assuming, again, it was good quality stress test, imaging modality with it. There was really no ischemia in that territory, and he has no engine as well. I actually don't know why he's being treated. It doesn't well, sound like it makes I, sense. Actually. I can't tell you he's, a, he's the most poorly compliant patient out there, so maybe the doctor is aware that he will not do all the things necessary to improve his potential life expectancy extension. So maybe he's doing it because he knows that this lesion is going to eventually be an 80% because Scott Scott doesn't like to do anything. That's possible, but still current evidence would not suggest treating a lesion that's not associated with ischemia. So because your argument that you just made could then be further applied to the 50% lesion, which might also progress as might the 40. So even though there's some sense to that approach, there's no science behind it. So I'm not sure Scott necessarily needs a stent. But, but to answer your, your, your more general question of what to do about the 20s and 30s, because atherosclerosis is a diffuse disease and, and there's no way, at least right now, to stent all those lesions safely. That's why medical therapy such as statins that treats all the plaque is so essential. But I think the correct way to, to really uh, frame the debate isn't 
to make it a debate, that is, medicines or procedures, really the two should be viewed as complementary. That is, any patient that needs a stent or bypass surgery ought to be on aggressive medical therapy. And many patients don't need those procedures if they can, in fact, be compliant with aggressive medical therapy and lifestyle modification. So that's not a lot of patients, ultimately, that, that are, are that good about things, that they can take all their medicines, tolerate all their medicines, lose weight, diet, etc. But But for those that can, I think if you've got stable coronary artery disease, there's no evidence that revascularization provides a benefit. But this is quite different, though, from the acute coronary syndrome patient who's already shown that they have the phenotype or genotype or both to rupture plaque. So that sort of patient, that, that's a different uh, category uh, of concern uh, on the physician's part. There, we've really got to be aggressive not only with medical care, but also procedural care. TPEC Bot, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, a pleasure as always. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>